Hello and welcome to the Tech Narratives Podcast. My name is Jan Dawson. This is episode 72, the episode for Friday, October 6th. And so the episode that we'll round out the week with. Earlier this afternoon, we recorded the Beyond Devices Podcast News Roundup episode for the week, in which we did a deeper dive on the Google News in particular, but also the Netflix price increases announced this week, and briefly the Sonos event that I attended in New York earlier in the week. So if those topics are of interest to you, you'll get a deeper dive in the Beyond Devices podcast this week uh, on those. For today, I have eight items for you that I've written about on the site, and then six items in the roundup, including both some longer reads and backgrounders, as I usually include, and a couple of smaller pieces of news that were mostly updates on earlier things that didn't feel like they were worthy of comments in their own right, at least on the site. Uh, So number one today from the site, a story from 9to5Google, This is a story about Google Fiber, which you may remember a few months back, Google said that it would not be expanding to new areas beyond those already announced as it rethought its strategy, potentially refocusing on wireless technologies rather than fiber. But there were some markets that it had already announced at that point and which are now rolling out, including San Antonio and Louisville in Kentucky. And uh, in those markets, uh, Google will not be offering TV service for the first time. So everywhere else that Google Fiber has rolled out, it's been a combination of broadband and TV service. Uh, For a long time, it didn't offer voice service. It has offered voice services in some markets, Uh, but essentially it's been broadband and TV. Uh, TV uptake, to be honest, has always been very low. So as of the end of last year, there were fewer than 100,000 TV subscribers, uh, whereas there were hundreds of thousands of broadband subscribers in the various markets. So TV uptake was always lower than uh, broadband. And of course, the economics around TV are also less favorable because the vast majority of the revenue gets passed through to the channel owners that the pay TV companies have to pay. So especially at Google scale, it's likely that the TV service was minimally profitable if it was profitable at all. Whereas the broadband service, if deployed and and taken up in large enough scale, would have at least been profitable. So no huge surprise there, probably a sensible move. And especially given the fact that the people likeliest to subscribe to a gigabit broadband service are people who are very familiar with online video and so on already. So likely big Netflix, Hulu, potentially even YouTube TV subscribers. So shouldn't affect Google Fiber, but interesting to see them making that change here. Number two, second story that relates to Google and Alphabet. This is from Quartz, which has done some interesting digging into the UK accounts for DeepMind, which is uh, the company that Alphabet acquired a few years back, which is focused on cutting edge artificial intelligence and machine learning work. This is the company and the team behind things like the AlphaGo Uh, computers that have been built to play some of the world's best human players and beat them at that game. Uh, The the UK accounts, which are still filed because technically DeepMind is still registered as a private company in the UK, even though it's owned by Alphabet, it lost $162 million as a company in 2016 on revenues of a little over $40 million. Um, And so the key point here is this is a loss-making enterprise. And it's not surprising because it's basically in the category of R&D. Most of the things that they're working on are things that are years from being in any kind of products that would generate revenue. A lot of it's experimental, like the AlphaGo stuff is all sort of promotional, essentially. So not a huge surprise. And just a tiny fraction of of Google, sorry, Alphabet's $15 billion overall R&D budget over the past four quarters. So a small amount of... Uh, the total R&D budget, but just a sense of the scale of what it costs to run this kind of cutting-edge R&D team around AI and machine learning. Thirdly, uh, this is a piece that's been in the news for the last couple of weeks, ever since iOS 11 launched publicly. 
And it relates to what's called the control center, which is the set of controls that pops up when you swipe up from the bottom of the screens on current iPhones and includes what appear to be on-off toggles for Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. In iOS 11, though, those don't actually turn Wi-Fi and Bluetooth all the way off. They put them into a special sort of limited mode where certain Apple features still get to take advantage of them. Uh, but general speaking, sort of general Wi-Fi and Bluetooth devices don't get to take advantage of them. Um, it also means that the Wi-Fi and Bluetooth will get turned back on periodically uh, if you change locations, and 5 o'clock every morning, I guess, they reset to their default states as well. So uh, Apple's been criticized of this by the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which is sort of a privacy watchdog, and they say that this creates some security risks. They're not very specific about that. They just refer to general Bluetooth vulnerabilities, of which I'm not familiar with any current ones that attack iOS devices specifically. So that seems to be a theoretical risk rather than a real one. But it gets to the broader point of Apple making a change like this without proactively communicating it to users uh, with potentially some negative side effects on battery, privacy, security, and so on. Uh, and it feels like, on the one hand, a very Apple-like thing to do to make decisions like this on behalf of customers uh, in the service of what they would think of as the greater good. So I certainly heard from at least some people after I wrote about this today that they really appreciated the fact that, for example, they might turn Wi-Fi off while out and about, but they wanted to turn back on when they get home, and this feature would automatically make that happen. Uh, but it, it's a feature that Apple hasn't communicated well, and it does have some negative side effects, and they could probably implement it differently, and at the very least in the control center give users the option of turning Wi-Fi and Bluetooth all the way off there rather than having to go deep into settings. Number four, uh, TechCrunch is what I'm linking to here, but AOL Instant Messenger is shutting down after 20 years. Uh, it's, I've, there's been a ton of nostalgia about it on Twitter, at least the Twitter accounts that I follow today, especially from people in their sort of 20s and 30s, uh, people who are heavy AOL Instant Messenger users, either in their teens or uh, as young adults in workplaces where it was heavily used. I was never a heavy user. I had an account at one point, but I don't ever recall using it regularly. I think perhaps because I was born and raised in the UK rather than the US, uh, perhaps also because the age that I was at when it came out uh, meant that it was less relevant for me. But one of those sort of cultural icons, uh, one of the big instant messaging services in the US uh, that arguably laid the groundwork for uh, all the messaging services and social network services that have come after that, uh, including things like Twitter, but of course surpassed by those services as well in utility and certainly in usage, and it has probably less than half a million users at this point, and it's shutting down in December. The reason for mentioning it, it's not all that relevant to the broader tech industry today. The reason I mention it, though, and wrote about it today is that it feels like it's indicative of the longevity of products, which long after early adopters have moved on to brighter, shinier new things, the mainstream still continues to use them. And the fact that AOL as a company is still around, the fact that its dial-up service is still around, the fact that something like AIM has to be shut down 20 years after its launch when most people have moved on and forgotten about it, is indicative of just how long this stuff does stick around and how the tech media often focuses on the new shiny things and often understands very poorly how regular people actually use technology and how long stuff like this actually sticks around. Number five, a uh, re re uh, press release from Apple today about its general counsel, Bruce Sewell, retiring. He's been replaced by Catherine Ab Adams, who had a similar title at uh, Honeywell. Uh, I mentioned this for two reasons. Again, this is the kind of thing that's not enormous news in and of itself uh, when the sort of top lawyer at a company steps down. Uh, but Bruce Sewell's kind of been unusual over the last couple of years as a general counsel in that he's been unusually high profile. So the big fight with the FBI over the San Bernardino shooter's iPhone, for example, um, as well as big patent cases against Samsung and more recently against Qualcomm. Uh, this whole legal side of Apple's business has been unusually 
uh, high profile during that time. And Bruce Sewell himself has been involved in at least some of that, has been sort of a spokesman for Apple on the FBI issues in particular. So notable that he's retiring and handing all of that over to somebody else. Uh, and of course, the FBI stuff very closely tied to Apple's strategy of putting privacy uh, front and center as a differentiator. Second reason to mention it, though, is that he is retiring, a man from Apple's board, and will be replaced by a woman. And that actually now means that there will be two women on the 11-person board at Apple. So uh, Angela Ahrens, the only current woman there. As I noted before, if you go down one more layer to where Lisa Jackson and various others are, uh, four of that eight next layer of VPs uh, are women. So it's a 50-50 split between men and women at that level. Uh, but it's been very tough to change the mix at the board level at Apple because there's such longevity among the executives there. And so good to see that as there has been some churn there, Apple has used that as an opportunity to bring in female executives, certainly not suggesting that's the only reason why Catherine Adams was brought in. I'm sure she is extremely well qualified, uh, but it's good to see that increasing diversity in what has been a very male-dominated board at Apple until now. Number six, the Washington Post has a deep dive based on some research that's been done around uh, the Russian-linked accounts use of Facebook. And of course, a lot of the focus here has been on the ads bought by Kremlin-linked uh, entities and so on, and the reach they've had. And certainly Facebook's public reporting has been very narrowly uh, confined and defined around ads and their uh, direct reach and so on, and, and has made it sound like a very small operation. Uh, but this researcher has taken some of the accounts that we found out were involved in that effort and looked at their organic reach. So in other words, the people they're able to reach just by posting things uh, and people following them and sharing them and so on. And what this researcher has discovered is that those accounts have massive reach on Facebook. Some of their posts have gone viral, to use the terminology, and have been seen by millions of people. And, and their reach is certainly much broader than the ads alone would suggest. And the key thing here is that if you're not spending money on Facebook, uh, you're not subject to anywhere near the same sort of oversight uh, in terms of what your activities are. And if you're very clever about how you do spend the money on advertising, you can use it to extend the reach of certain posts and get them in front of certain people that you know will be unusually influential in spreading them to other people. And that seems to have been exactly what these Russian entities have done here. And so uh, we don't have all the details on what what these accounts were or what exactly they posted. So this, this analysis is broader than that, but it certainly indicates that the reach of these activities was absolutely massive. And conversely, that there was really nothing Facebook could have done unless it had somehow proactively investigated this stuff at the time and discovered that the accounts were linked in this way to the Russian government, something that, of course, would not emerge as a matter of course. So continues to highlight the difficulty of policing this stuff both in the past and going forward. Number seven, really interesting analysis from Janko Rutgers at Variety of the impact on the removal of YouTube from the Amazon Echo Show devices, uh, which was announced last week. And... Uh, as I said at the time, this was likely to impact the Echo Show far more than it would impact uh, YouTube, and that certainly seems to have been the case. And so he demonstrates that the sales rankings within Amazon's electronics bestseller list for the Echo Show devices has dropped quite a bit over the last week or so, and that there's been lots of negative reviews, people referring to the Echo Show as basically a paperweight without YouTube and so on. Worth remembering, YouTube's one of only a couple of video services on, on the Echo Show, along with Prime Video and was the main uh, way in which it responded to queries for uh, videos. And so in that sense, you know, it's taken a big hit and uh, it'll be interesting to see how those numbers change going forward. But certainly Echo Show is going to be a lot less attractive as a device going forward because of the YouTube removal, for which we still don't have a formal explanation. Uh, 
And then lastly, the Wall Street Journal has a piece about the Tesla Model 3 production line and the fact that as late as a month ago, Tesla was still manually assembling Model 3 cars. Uh, and of course, earlier this week, Tesla reported deliveries and production for Model 3 in the third quarter, and, and there, there were just a couple of hundred cars produced. So the fact that they're still being produced manually rather than on the automated production line would certainly be a partial explanation for that would suggest the automated production line is either malfunctioning in some way, simply not ready, and that would then add some additional detail behind Elon Musk's remarks about production bottlenecks earlier in the week. Uh, so just more evidence that Tesla's scrambling to get this stuff ready in time, that it's way behind on production and very unlikely to meet its near-term targets for this stuff. Elon Musk on Twitter having a few casual conversations with people continues to maintain that there's going to be an exponential ramp uh, once they get some of these bottlenecks figured out. But uh, certainly doesn't seem likely to catch up in the, the time remaining. That's the last of the eight items from the site today. Uh, just go quickly into the roundup here where I have six items to talk about. CNBC has a piece about Amazon being on the brink of deciding if it's going to make a big move into selling pharmaceuticals online. Uh, this is a story I've covered before, which is why I didn't do a new comment on it today because there's really nothing specific in this piece other than that it's going to make a decision by Thanksgiving on this. But you might be interested in reading that to get the details there. Uh, secondly, another story that wasn't hugely significant uh, and follows up on a, an earlier story about Spotify integration within Facebook Messenger. Facebook Messenger now has an Apple Music bot, uh, which will allow you, if you're a subscriber, to play full songs and so on. If you're not a subscriber, to share little 30-second snippets and that kind of thing. Uh, interesting to see Apple Music take this approach. They have a partnership with Musical.ly already, uh, which is a popular um, app for creating music videos around songs and so on. So doing more with partnerships around Apple Music makes a ton of sense. That's been very good for Spotify over the last few years. Uh, also from The Verge, uh, piece one of several I saw today about new emoji coming to iOS 11 in uh, version 11.1 shortly. Lots and lots of new emoji, uh, lots of new animals, various other things, some uh, new sort of gender neutral emoji and various other things in there. So uh, continue to see that that range of emoji expand, which is going to make them frankly harder to find, I think, in iOS as well. But uh, interesting to see that expand. Um, Recode has a piece about the... Uh, Russian ads problem and, and Facebook and Google and Twitter and so on. And uh, this is a more of a sort of an explainer and a backgrounder on what exactly is happening and why it's an issue and that kind of thing. So I've talked about this here and there over the last few weeks as this has been in the news. But this is a good backgrounder on all of this, might help you understand some of the context a bit more. Uh, number five, another one of these sort of quick update pieces. Bloomberg reporting that Sprint and T Mobile are ironing out the final details of a deal between the two companies. Uh, again, not a ton of new detail here other than that. Things are progressing. So what I didn't write about that separately since I've written about it a couple of times over the last few weeks as well. Uh, but additional details there from Bloomberg. And then lastly, another piece from the Wall Street Journal, this one about Amazon and its video efforts. And whereas I think Amazon's often simply lumped in with Netflix as a big sort of uh, video provider these days and this company investing heavily in original content and so on, uh, this piece argues that Amazon's actually falling short, that it's struggling that it's failing to dominate uh, Hollywood the way it has e-commerce, for example. So interesting sort of counterpoint to some of the prevailing narrative about Amazon in video uh, and some good sort of um, dose of reality, I guess, in there in terms of where Amazon actually is with its video efforts at the moment. So as usual, links to those as well as to everything else I've talked about today in the show notes. Thanks very much for listening today and throughout the week. As always, if you feel so inclined, you can leave a review or rating in your podcast app of choice that helps other people to find uh, the podcast as well. And if you haven't yet done so, go to technarratives.com and uh, sign up for a free trial or a permanent subscription there. 
so that you can get all the additional detail that's available there beyond the very brief glimpse that I give you here on the podcast each day. Thanks very much again for listening. Have a great weekend. We'll be back with a new episode on Monday. Bye-bye.